like Daniel LaRusso in The Karate Kid, have you ever completed a task only to realize that you're not really done or even close to it? Have you ever painted one section of fence only to see that you have acres of fence left to paint and the other side? Oftentimes that happens in life. You get to the end of something and you realize it's not quite the end. You realize, to quote Winston Churchill, this is not the end or the beginning of the end. It is merely the end of the beginning. It can actually be disappointing knowing that you're not done yet, but it can also be exciting to think of the new opportunities and the new challenges that await you as your journey evidently continues. That's what crosses my mind when it comes to the end of the book of Romans. For the past 18 months, we've actually been studying Romans in a extended series that is currently called The Continuing Mission. As you probably know by now, Romans is a very important book in the Bible, uh, written by a first century Christian missionary, a guy by the name of Paul. And we spent 18 months studying Romans because the book is 16 chapters of very important Christian theology. I mean, in, in the book of Romans, Paul does an, an inspired job summarizing for us uh, the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity, the message that... Uh, a loving God uh, saves sinners like us, condemns sinners like us through faith in Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of the Christian gospel and the essence of the book of Romans, that a loving God saves condemned sinners like us from sin and death through faith in Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul explicates that message for us, he actually gets into a whole bunch of really important topics that we've studied quite thoroughly, sin, salvation, sanctification, justification, predestination, the Holy Spirit, love, uh, acceptance, community. So he's talked about a lot over the past 16 chapters. And after 18 months of this very detailed study of what Paul says about these things, we are nearly done. We have just like three verses to go. Just, just, just one more board to paint. But just because we are done with Romans does not really mean that we are done with Romans. To put it another way, just because we are done with Romans doesn't mean that Romans is done with us. In fact, Romans is just the beginning to a fence-painting journey that will never truly end. And this is actually one of Paul's points in the final few verses of the book that we're going to study together this morning, that one is never really done with the book of Romans, or at least with its message. So if you would, follow along with me as I share it with you our final passage in our study. It's Romans chapter 16 verses 25 through 27. Uh, no, look me, look scripture. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't practice that, it just kind of came out. <laughs> Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Or amen, however you say it that word. Personal preference. 
Now, these final few verses of Romans offer some concluding notes of praise for the message that Paul has been summarizing in the book. Paul chooses to end his letter by, by praising God for the gospel. As we've sort of seen over our study of chapter 16, uh, chapter 16, as, as Jacob and Jeremy have pointed out, it's sort of like the credits to the book. Like in, in chapter 16, he sort of thanks people who have who've helped, you know, in writing the letter, Tertius and Gaius, and delivered the letter Phoebe, and he says kind of goodbye to some people. Um, but, but Paul chooses like the final credit here. Uh, Paul chooses to give the final credit to God for the message that he's been summarizing. That message, says Paul, it was written about by the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed by Jesus, it was given so that all the nations, so all the Gentiles, might believe and obey God. And all this has taken place according to the glorious plan of the only wise God. There's a lot of dumb gods out there, but the only wise God to whom should go all glory, Paul writes. Paul decides to end the letter praising God who gives him this message to preach. It's sort of like Johann Sebastian Bach, the German 18th century composer. If you know anything about Bach, Bach was a, a deeply spiritual person. And at the end of every single one of his compositions, in the bottom right-hand corner, he would write, Soli Deo Gloria. At the end of every single one of his compositions, he would write those words, Glory to God alone. It was sort of his final note. Just as this is Paul's final note, that everything we are, everything we compose, everything that we are compo that composes us is ultimately to God's glory alone. Amen, or amen, or whatever. Now this is certainly something worth thinking about and doing more often. I mean, not that he needs it, but we would do well to give God more credit, especially when things work out for us so brilliantly in the end, right? I mean, we give God a lot of grief when things don't work out, we could stand to give him more final credit when they do. Because every now and then, things do work out. We actually don't like to think about this because it makes our angst more justified, but every now and then, things actually do work out for us. Not every storyline in our lives ends as a tragedy. Not, not every uh, marriage ends in divorce. Not every job offer uh, ends in uh, dismissal. Not, not every uh, pregnancy ends in a miscarriage. Every now and then, things actually do work out for us, and we do well to give God the final credit. So what's something that has actually worked out in your life recently? How has God saved you uh, from devastation and, from, uh, and blessed you in Christ? Have you paused in your life to give him, the only wise God, all the final credit and glory he deserves? That's Paul's overall purpose here, to give God final credit. But there is a little word here in this, in this short composition. It's a tiny little word here uh, that I really want to focus on because, frankly, I just like it so much. The word is establish. As Paul writes, God is able to establish you by my gospel and by the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word establish uh, comes is steridzai. That's where we get the English word establish. And the Greek word establish, steridzai, it can actually be translated in a variety of different ways. It can be translated establish, it can be translated to strengthen, it can be translated to make firm, uh, or to confirm. And the word occurs very frequently in the Bible when talking about helping young churches or young believers become strong and firm 
and established. For example, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, we sent our servant Timothy to establish you in your faith. So to establish means to help someone or something become mature. It it means to help a small, meager rooftop from 19 years ago become the established congregation that it is now, with people and, and leaders in a building. It means to, to establish, to steroidize something. It means to help small, puny little Christians, like so many of us were so long ago, to become mature believers with, with character, hopefully, and convictions. That's what Paul is describing. He's describing the message of the gospel as that which can establish us. And this is very important in terms of how it fits into Romans. I mean, in a way, the letter of Romans describes God's loving efforts to save sinners like us from sin. But but really, that's only part of the gospel. God doesn't just want to save us. God wants to strengthen us. And that's what I mean when I say that the end of Romans isn't really the end. It's only the beginning. We learn in Romans that God saves sinners. But God doesn't just want to save sinners. God wants to strengthen saints. God doesn't just want to rescue you from hell. God wants to ready you for heaven. That's different. It's kind of like the Karate Kid. You know, early in the movie, when Mr. Miyagi saves Daniel-san from the Cobra Kai on the night of the Halloween party, he saves him from getting beat up. That's not like the end of the movie. Miyagi doesn't say, okay, Daniel-san, I saved you. Roll credit. (laughs) No, he has to establish him. He has to make him strong. He has to train him and teach him how he can stand on his own and fight off those enemies by himself. This is important, and it's important for many reasons. It's important because there's plenty of people in the church today who are kind of okay being saved and leaving it at that. Hey, I'm going to heaven. What else is there? I'm saved. I'm good. But God refuses to accept this. Why? Because God actually has visions of what he wants to do in and through us in the world. God actually has dreams of how he wants to use our lives to change the world for the better. And that takes experience and maturity. Also, because faith is hard. And young, immature believers tend not to last very long. The devil is always trying to distract and tempt young believers away from the faith. I mean, if you're a new Christian, you need to know that the devil sees you as fresh meat. You need to grow. You need to put down some roots lest you blow away or get eaten up. My neighbor, for example, a few years ago, he planted a new sapling tree in his yard. But he did it kind of oddly and uh, not in the right place and he didn't really water it and uh, a couple years later, it's dead. Now it's just a dead young tree in his yard that's like still there. Cut it down. That's what happens to young saplings and young Christians who don't really get established. They sometimes die and don't do anything good for anybody. There's too many things that can go wrong. Sin, temptation, suffering. Healthy trees are established trees. 
God doesn't just want to save you through Jesus. He wants to strengthen you in Jesus. He's determined to do so, in fact. As Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who started something in you is going to finish it. God's not like my neighbor who planted a tree and then forgot to water it and let it die. God wants to make you grow. Now, how does God do that? How does God establish people in the faith? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this. And I want to share with you a few thoughts as we wrap up our Roman study this morning. Three thoughts on how God establishes his people in the gospel. Conveniently, oh, so conveniently, they all start with the same letter. He establishes us, God establishes us as mature believers through people, God establishes us as mature believers through practice, and God establishes us as mature believers through pain. Through people, through practice, and through pain. First, God establishes us as mature believers through people. He sends people into our lives to cultivate us, to preach the gospel to us, to encourage us, to pray for us. I've told you already what Paul has written to the Thessalonians. He says, we sent Timothy to establish you, to sterilize you and exhort you in the faith. And we read in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas uh, preached the good news in the city. They won a large number of disciples, large number of converts. Then they returned, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them in their faith. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his lead disciple, Simon Peter, who's once again having some problems. Simon Peter always seemed to be having some problems. And Jesus tells him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned back, here's what you do, strengthen your brothers. In all three of these examples, God uses some of his people to strengthen the rest of his people. Timothy, Paul, Barnabas, Simon, Peter. We we cannot grow in isolation. I remember a book that I read years ago uh, by authors Cloud and Townsend, and the book was called How People Grow. And I saw this book, and I knew I must read it because I really wanted the answer to that question, not just for my sake, but for y'all's. How do people grow? And I don't actually remember the the entire um, contents of the book, obviously, but I do remember the, the gist of the author's answer to that question of how people grow. And the gist of the author's answer to the question of how people grow is actually quite simple. People grow through people. People grow in the company of other people. It's God's design, in fact. Other people give us the leadership, the prayer, the accountability, the grace, the modeling that we need to grow. It's why one of our big six values here at Rooftop is community. Not just because community is fun, although community is fun, but because community is essential to growth. It's it's why we talk about small groups so much here at Rooftop. It's why I can't imagine life without being in my small group. That's why Pastor Jeremy is starting his new Summit series as a chance for us to grow in the company of other believers. Uh, You're going to be hearing more about that. God matures us as children as we live our lives in the company of other mature, godly people. So the obvious question here is this. Are you living out your faith in the company of other people? Are you taking the very intentional steps required? And there's nothing... I mean, these steps 
require intentionality. They don't just happen. Are you taking the very steps, the very important steps required to surround yourself with mature people who know you, who are honest with you, who, who love you, who will challenge you? I mean, if you go to a church, even this one, how regularly do you go? Do you just go? Or are you, or are you a family member of that church, living out your faith in the company of people? There is no other way. God establishes us through people. Secondly, God establishes us through practice. Maturity takes practice. As the author of Hebrews remarks, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another daily. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another daily. Here again we see uh, the author's emphasis on the role of people in maturation, but we also see the role of discipline and practice. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. He later writes about spiritual growth as a discipline. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Growth requires training. Even Paul himself understands spiritual strengthening as something requiring exercise. As he writes to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Speaking of uh, physical training, we do a lot of exercise uh, around our house. Uh, I try to hit the gym as often as I can, which is not nearly as often as I'd like. Um, my wife and my oldest son, though, have started outperforming me, which is humbling. Uh, they've been going to a CrossFit class a couple times a week. You know what CrossFit is? It's this strange exercise program where the people in charge try to murder you. <laughs> and where you go back <laughs> for more. Uh, my family comes back from CrossFit exhausted and sore, near death, <laughs> but also invigorated. And they are doing things that they never would have imagined themselves ever doing. My, my wife, my, uh, my beautiful wife, Michelle, is doing deadlifts. I can't imagine my wife, Michelle, I can't, is doing, actually doing deadlifts. Uh, my kid, my oldest kid, is doing uh, pull-ups. He's in a wheelchair. He's doing pull-ups. You're not even doing pull-ups. <laughs> and my kid in a wheelchair is doing pull-ups. All these exercises are actually turning them into different people. And that's what practice does. Just as regular physical exercise makes us physically stronger, spiritual exercise strengthens our souls. And, and, and just as God gives us physical exercises, he gives us spiritual exercises to do spiritually. I visited one of our small groups this past week uh, on Monday night. Had a great time visiting the small group to, to do some teaching on the spiritual discipline of fasting. Fasting is sort of like the deadlift for the spirit. Uh, and, and fasting, like going without food for prescribed amounts of time, strengthens your will over your body, which is, which is the Christian life. Well, part of the Christian life. Strengthening your will over your body. It also creates, gives you time and energy to uh, focus on other things vastly more important than eating. Things like thinking, meditating, praying. That's why we're doing the Lenten Challenge around here at Rooftop which we talked about a couple of weeks ago during the season of Lent. Uh, made an app available on the website. You can get a couple verses out of the Bible sent to you every day uh, that allow you to, to kind of live in the Word, at least for 40 days. 
These are all good things, especially when done regularly over many years, and that's the key. Daily practice over many years can make you a different person. My other kid, for example, my middle kid, he's a high school baseball player, and his team just started uh, games this past week. When he is hitting the ball, he hits lasers. He crushes it. But it's not like he just picked up a bat a couple weeks ago and started hitting lasers. He never put it down. I mean, he's been driving himself to hitting practice once or twice a week for the, as far back as any of us can remember. This is what happens over many years through regular practice. This is what can happen in the life of someone who practices. They get strong. What are you doing to let God strengthen you as one of his people? What disciplines are you practicing regularly over many years to become the person God designed you to be? How are you stretching yourself? If you want to stay the same, do the same. If you want to stay the same, do the same. If you want to grow, do different. God establishes us as mature believers through people, through practice, and lastly, God establishes people through pain. I'm talking about the pain of suffering. Much to our displeasure, God uses the pain of suffering and hardship to establish us and make us strong. As Peter writes, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, steadfast. He will establish you through suffering. And as Paul himself has already written in Romans, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. The suffering we endure in life can make us stronger in our faith. The suffering that we experience in loss, in grief, in health trials, in financial struggles, in marital difficulties, these struggles can actually teach us critical lessons about faith, about life, about God, about ourselves, lessons that we otherwise would not have learned but for the suffering we had to endure. Lessons that are more valuable than the pain of our suffering. I've actually heard that trees that endure the stress of storms and winds actually grow stronger. Why? Because their roots have to dig deeper into the soil to buffet themselves against the storm. Their branches have to grow thicker so they don't blow off. Same thing with people. Suffering gives us the chance to grow stronger, to dig deeper, to grow thicker bark so that we don't just fall apart at whatever life throws at us. Now this is not our general attitude in life. We don't actually think that suffering makes us stronger. We think that suffering makes us weaker. I read a book uh, last month, fascinating book, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And the authors point out that people today, especially kids today, I'm old and cranky enough that I can start talking like that, kids today, but people today in general, have grown afraid of conflict and hardship. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we have so many safe spaces about, so that we don't have to be challenged. We've grown too fragile. But life is not a safe space. And far more importantly, as the authors write, there are some things in the world 
that are actually designed to get stronger through stress. That's how they're designed. They're designed to get stronger through stress. And this includes human beings. We need to be challenged to grow. If we don't suffer, we're at risk of becoming just another spiritual snowflake. I mean, Christians are very hard about judging the world for being all snowflakey. But some of the biggest snowflakes I've ever seen live in the church. Christians who don't want God to hurt them because they might melt. Now, suffering doesn't necessarily automatically produce maturity. Uh, Suffering merely has the potential to make us strong. Suffering can leave us hopeless and forlorn and permanently depressed. You have to choose your response. This is one of the reasons why I think God actually takes a risk in allowing suffering to take place in our lives. He knows it could be great for us, but he also knows that it could ruin us. I've seen plenty of people ruined by pain. Some of you might be among the ruined. But our maturity as his people is too important to God to spare us from the required pain. So God takes the risk. Letting unspeakable tragedies befall us and then leaves it up to us to decide how we're going to respond. Will we let this hardship defeat us? Will we let the death of our loved one ruin us? Will we let this job loss overwhelm us? Will we let this divorce be the end of us? Or will we accept the hardship and grow stronger through it and be more established in the end? The choice is ours. Many of you are in great pain right now. All of us are in one way or another. Suffering is a fact of life. As the hero from one of my favorite movies says, life is pain, princess. But this is how God makes us strong. It's how he establishes us as his people. So that is the book of Romans. It's a message of salvation for sinners like you and me, but Romans, again, is not the end of the story. There is still fence left to paint, lots of it, both side. There is still growing left to do. God isn't interested in letting us remain weak, young, sapling Christians who have been merely saved by Jesus Christ. He wants to make us strong. He wants to establish us as mature followers of Jesus who can endure struggle, who can resist temptation, and through whom he can do wonderful things in the world. Through people, through practice, through pain, God can do that. Through people, through practice, through pain, God can help us achieve the spiritual destiny that every single one of us is called to. We're going to close our study of Romans as we do on the third week of the month by celebrating communion together. Ultimately, the book of Romans is a book about Christ's death as a sacrifice for sins. That's what the book of Romans is all about. Christ's death as a sacrifice for sins, and that's what communion is about as well. Communion is something that followers of Jesus have been doing to celebrate Christ's death as a sacrifice for sins. That's what the elements remind us of. The bread reminds us of his body, which was broken for us. The cup reminds us of his blood, which was poured out for us. In a way, though, communion also summarizes for us everything that we've talked about this morning. Communion is one of the means by which we can grow as mature, established believers. I mean, think about it. What is communion? Communion is a spiritual practice 
in which God's people come together to remember the pain that Jesus had to go through in order to rescue us from sin and death. That's what communion is. It's a spiritual practice in which God's people come together to remember the pain that Jesus had to go through in order to rescue us from sin and death. I mean, in order to grow as a mature follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to eat healthy food. And there is no healthier food than the body and the blood of Jesus Christ.